tonight um, we are going to, uh, I really wish we weren't all here in the auditorium, I sort of wish we were all sitting in my study at home. Uh, of course, we all couldn't fit in there, so that's why I didn't invite you over. But um, if we were all sitting there, I could just sit across from you knee to knee on um, the two chairs that I have in my study, and, and we could just have a conversation. Um, and I've, I've thought a lot about this. Each uh, Sunday, we have looked at a different discipline that I believe personally that we have lost in the American church, disciplines that if we don't recover those biblical disciplines, we will continue to see the decline, uh, not just in the numbers of Christians in North America, but in the vitality of, of those Christians in North America. And so this morning we talked about discipleship, and each week I've tried to pray about what, what should we do on Sunday night in light of that. And so I actually want to revisit something that I did like the second or third Sunday night I was here as an interim pastor two and a half years ago, and uh, I've modified it and changed it. And I want to show you some stuff. Uh, some of it may be hard to take. Some of it may be hard to look at. But if, it may help you understand the sense of urgency that I bring as your pastor to some of the decisions that we make as we travel along this journey together in seeking to serve the Lord Jesus and lift him up in this place called the Delta in Arkansas. I want you to uh, think for a moment. How many of you have heard of the Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon. How many of y'all? Okay, good deal. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a wonderful Baptist preacher, uh, was saved, had a great testimony of how God saved him, had an incredible memory. He had memorized hundreds and hundreds of poems and hymns as a young boy because somehow his grandfather coerced him into it and uh, rewarded him for that behavior. And so he had all of this in his memory. And he just did some things that preachers today ought not ever do. Um, and I can't even mention some of the things he used to do, but one of the things he used to do is he waited till Saturday night to prepare his sermons. Now, preachers ought not do that. It'll give you a heart attack, um, and uh, it'll kill you over time, but, but Spurgeon would do that. And he would sit down in a few minutes, he'd pencil something out on a piece of paper. He'd come in and preach the next day to literally thousands of people. And, and lives would be changed, people would be saved, and there was always somebody on the front row who was transcribing his preaching as he spoke. They would take shorthand, and then once a year they would bundle those sermons and they would literally send them all over the world. And, and what's significant about him from what, in terms of what we're going to talk about tonight is that Charles Spurgeon and the church that, that he helped grow because it, it was a little struggling church, barely hanging on. He went there as a teenager to pastor that church. It eventually came to number 12,000 attenders on a Sunday. Truly the first mega church in modern times. And, and it was phenomenal. And people literally came all over the world to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. Now what I want you to understand is that that uh, he was very concerned, obviously, about building people and making disciples. His approach to it was to involve people in ministry, which is not a bad idea. And at one time, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where he pastored, had as many as 90 different ministries that you could become involved in. But he did challenge everybody to be involved in some kind of a ministry. But what they didn't have at the Metropolitan Tabernacle were small group Bible studies. They did not have that 12,000 people 
broken down into smaller groups where they studied the Bible together, developed relationships together, and that sort of thing. So as you might imagine or could speculate that when Charles Spurgeon died, and he died at a fairly young age, what happened to the 12,000 people that were attending the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Well, in the space of just a few years, the number 12,000 became 5,000. And the decline continued over time. And today, there's just a few people meeting at what's called Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London, England, in a large building, but just a few people. Something obviously was missing. There wasn't anything defective in his preaching. He was a marvelous preacher, man of God. And God used him. But for a church to grow that large, uh, one of the, the sayings that we've learned in the modern era is that we have to grow larger and we have to grow smaller at the same time. Uh, when I first started out ministry and I, would, and I would visit some of these churches, one of the things that I was always impressed with was the, the vitality of their smaller groups, their Bible study groups or their Sunday school ministry. Because I learned increasingly that that's where church happened. If you think of the basic purposes of church, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, fellowship, and um, worship. I have to think about it. Every dead frog must wiggle. That's how I remember all those. <laughs> you have to think about that. Evangelism, discipleship, fellowship. Anyway, uh, if you think about all of the, the major purposes of church life, with the exception of perhaps worship, which we do do well here, uh, the other four purposes best happen in a smaller group Bible study. Fellowship. Well, we shake cans here. You might see one or two people. But the intensity of fellowship is heightened when you're in a smaller group. Ministry. Well, some ministry may happen here. But it's usually in your smaller group Bible study that you discover that someone has a need. And the group comes together to meet the need. Um, if you think about even in terms of evangelism. Uh, when we see someone saved and come forward at Wynn Baptist Church, almost always they have come to faith in Christ in the context of some other gathering outside of the worship event. It's not that people can't come to Christ on Sunday morning, but our evangelism is far more effective through our Bible study groups than it is through our large uh, worship service. So if you don't know it already, your pastor is really, really high on what happens in your Bible study groups on Sunday morning. I believe it's the most important meeting that happens in the life of Wynn Baptist Church every week. And, and I want you to have a sense of how important that is. And so some of the information I'm going to share with you tonight may be disheartening, but I share it with you because I want to encourage you that the future lies in our following the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as an individual, although that's important, and not just in signing up for everything we tell you to sign up for as staff. But the future of Wynn Baptist Church lies in that Bible study group that you attend Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so I want to encourage you in that way. The Metropolitan Tabernacle had no Bible study groups at the time of Charles Spurgeon's death. And to this day, you can watch churches, particularly larger churches who are more sensitive to pastoral change struggle when that leadership changes you know I I think I'm a pretty good pretty good preacher I mean just ask me but I'm not good enough to sustain um, the kind of growth that has to happen in a church over time 
And when I leave, that church shouldn't miss a beat. Ideally, that church shouldn't miss a beat. And if the Bible study groups are vital and strong and healthy and all that God has called them to be, uh, it almost doesn't matter. I, I'm not going to say even Mickey Mouse could stand here and it wouldn't matter because I feel very strongly about preaching. But, but the pastoral transition is not going to affect the life of the church that, that much. I think one of the more recent examples in recent years of a large church that unusually success, successfully navigated the transition between pastors was First Baptist Orlando. If you, if you look at churches who were the top 10 churches in size and grew to a certain size, if you look at those lists and you look at them 10 years ago, very few of those churches are still on the list. And what's happened is eventually that pastor changes out and the church numbers are not sustained. But there are exceptions to that. And one of the great exceptions to that in recent times has been First Baptist Church Orlando. Jim Henry was pastor of that congregation and he had done a marvelous job. Uh, he was one of those rare pastors that had a gift for remembering names, and he knew the names of every person in his congregation, thousands of people. <laughs> he knew their names, and um, remarkable man of God. But when he knew his time was coming to leave as pastor, one of the things that he did was lead the congregation to bring on the man who would be the pastor and work through a process of transition because he'd been there for decades and when a pastor's been there that long, uh, you've got to pay very careful attention to, uh, to when that pastor leaves because most of the time churches tank after a long-tenured long pastor leaves. So anyway, um, he brought on a man named David Youth. How many of you all know David Youth? Yeah, he's an Arkansan, uh, native of Little Rock, uh, pastored here in, in Arkansas. Uh, at that time, he was pastoring the First Baptist Church of West Monroe, Louisiana, and he was called the First Orlando and they spent several years together, pastoring together, and then Dr. Henry stepped back, and uh, Dr. Yu stepped up, and that congregation not only continued to grow, but they are larger now than they have ever been. And it's not just about numerical growth, but they are healthy, they are reaching people in parts of Orlando that have never been reached before. Part of the strength of that transition was the way that that church over time had built their Bible study groups over time. When I came here as your interim pastor two and a half years ago, I had been here all of two weeks when I had sat through a seminar in my doctoral studies that had to do with church health and church life, church evangelism and, and uh, church health. And, um, and my practice at the time as I was taking the, my doctoral seminars was to wherever church I happened to be at, uh, I would use that church as the, the focus of any of the papers I was being required to write about and, uh, and study. And so at that time, I was brand new. I'd been here about two or three weeks as your interim pastor. And I had to write a paper, uh, a congregational case study. And so what I did was I talked to some of you, talked to some of your leaders, and I pulled all of the numerical data that I could from our records uh, that we keep on all the churches in Arkansas, and I wrote this paper. And I saw several things right away. Uh, the most important, uh, significant concern that I had, just as an outsider at the time coming in, had to do with the condition of our Bible study groups. You say, well, what's wrong with our Bible study group? I like my Bible study group. Uh, my friends are there. We all get along really well. Well, hang on. We'll take a look at it. Maybe you'll be able to answer your own question before we get done. Towards the end of that paper, as I was writing a summary of some of the steps I felt that 
this church needed to take two and a half years ago. These were my closing words. Now go ahead and bring, this, bring that up on the screen as I read it. Wynn desperately needs to revisit their understanding of the mission and purpose of Sunday school as a primary mechanism for outreach. What's outreach? It's reaching out, isn't it? Not just into the, the worship center. Outreach is reaching out there. Outreach. Assimilation. What's assimilation? It's when somebody comes here, they stick. They want to stay. They say, man, I love this place. I love these people. And I want to be a part of it. Assimilation. Ministry. Community and spiritual growth. Sunday school is a primary mechanism. I felt that we needed to recover that. What needs to change about the Sunday school at Wynn? And I had a list of about a, a dozen things, and I don't want to get into that tonight. And so um, what did I see that caused me that level of concern? What did I see that caused me to write down that it was really important that this congregation give careful attention to the condition of their Bible study groups? I want you to see this. Go ahead and bring up this graph. This is when Bible study attendance since 2007. In 2007, the average Bible study attendance at Wynn Baptist Church was 711 people. 711 people. That is, best I can tell, the highest average Bible study attendance that the church has ever enjoyed, ever known. There have been other periods of rapid growth, but in terms of sustained uh, average Bible study attendance, it ran at 711. Now, in 2007, that number began to change. It began to go into a slow decline. Have you ever heard the analogy of the frog in the kettle? You know the frog in the kettle? If you uh, drop a frog in a pot of boiling water, he's going to jump out. But if you put him in a pot of water and you slowly increase the heat, just a little bit at a time, well, that frog's a goner <laughs> because he doesn't recognize the, the temperature change, uh, being cold-blooded. And so uh, what happens in the Bible study groups is our numbers slowly began to decline. It wasn't overnight, but it was steady, and it was significant. You see it declining in um, 2011 to 620. Uh, to 2012, it was down below 600 to 592. Uh, that's that's uh, almost 120 people in average Sunday school attendance that had changed. In the middle of that year, your former pastor left, Matt Pearson, uh, left to become pastor at First Baptist Church El Dorado. And for the following six months, you didn't, you didn't have um, a senior pastor. So uh, I came at the very beginning of 2013. Uh, I was here half that year as an interim pastor, then committed to cardinal sin and accepted your invitation to become your pastor. Um, interim pastors aren't supposed to do that. And, but I did resign first, didn't I? I did resign first. And so I did the right thing. But 2013, I came in the middle of that year, and the, the whatever word you want to use, the decline stopped, the, uh, the bleeding stopped, the hemorrhaging of members, uh, tenders stopped. And last year, 2014, we actually had a slight increase in our average Bible study attendance. The corner had turned. But I didn't show you the rest of that list. And one of the, one of the important principles, um, one of the important things that you and I have to do if we're going we're gonna to grow, is to make room and always be making room for new people who are not part of us yet, people who are out there to become part of us. 
And one of the things that we saw is that every usable space, except for two or three places, was already being used. And so if I was going to take a large Sunday school class that was going great guns and was, was really doing well, having fun, and I was going to say, let me challenge your class to start a new class. Well, very quickly, we didn't have places to put them. Uh, we didn't have a place where we could say, okay, when you start a new class, you can go to this place and, and start that new class. We just didn't have it. And uh, we had some spaces up in the, uh, the east wing, uh, three small rooms. We could knock out the walls. We still can do that and create a big space there. We had a couple rooms that were being used as storage. Uh, you know, that's what happens when you don't use Sunday school space. And because they weren't being used, we used them as storage, and we could clean those out and that sort of thing. But we didn't have the room. So we made the decision last August, and we spent most of the summer communicating that to you. Uh, you'll remember the red chair stories and the red chair. I hope you're still using the red chair in your Bible study groups. Uh, where we told stories about people whose lives have been impacted and changed by Bible study in a small group. But we made the change. And so we went to a, uh, a new configuration for Bible study. And I want you to see in the next slide what has happened since we did that. We went from one Bible study hour to two. We added a Bible study hour. And uh, to simplify the activity, we did it concurrently with worship. And so what we do now is at 8.30 we have a worship and a Bible study that happen at the same time, right? And then at 10 o'clock, we have a worship and a Bible study that happen at the same time. Well, what has happened, in, and we didn't know what would happen, but when you start two Bible studies in a church, there are several things that you can expect to happen. I told our deacon leadership last summer that in the churches where I have done this or led this, and based on the experience of other churches that have done this, that when you, when you add a second Bible study and, uh, and the people are, are in one sense divided, that you typically have about 5 to 10% of your people that say, I don't like that. And they quit coming. A 5 to 10% decrease. But at the same time that you experience that because you have done what you needed to do to make room for new people to come, that you usually recover what you've lost in 12 to 18 months. And we're approaching the 12-month mark. And we still got some time, but we haven't recovered it all yet. Just a little bit, but not all of it. But we have lost some. And I, I, I want you to see that on the left, and this, this is not an apple and apple comparison because if you were comparing the two fairly, we would look at the same time frames, and we're in the middle of the summer. But even with using our summer slump figures, uh, we, have at, we were averaging... Uh, from January to August last year, 536 in Bible study, and now we're averaging 511 since we started. We've lost about 25 people in average attendance. Not hundreds, not even 10%. We lost roughly 5%. And so uh, I'd hoped we wouldn't lose any, but we did lose some. And I want you to see, if you look at that carefully on the right side, that we actually saw increases in some areas. For example, our student numbers went up. Uh, we saw increases in our preschool. We saw almost no change in our elementary. It was in our adult area that we saw change. And, um, and so for our students, it uh, was exactly what we'd hoped would happen. For our adults, the adjustment for some was too great. We did start one new Bible study group this year. It doesn't meet on Sunday morning. It meets on Mondays, right? It meets on Mondays. 
They run about 10 or 11, and uh, so we've seen some new growth with uh, that, that particular group. So that's kind of the before and after. I want to dig into it just a little more, more deeply. I want you to look at the next chart, which breaks down the difference between the two hours, what's happening at 8.30, what's happening at 10 o'clock. And if you look at that, you'll see that at 8.30, we're averaging 160 in Bible study. At 10 o'clock, we're averaging 341. That means about 30% of our Bible study attendance is coming at the early hour, 8.30. 70% of our Bible study attendance is coming at the later hour, at 10 o'clock. Now, if you were me, where do you need to see more people show up? 8.30. Now, if, I've, if I'm uh, go out in, uh, to win, and, uh, and I go out weekly, and I get to go out periodically with Odie Walker. He and I go out, and we're, we're visiting buddies. And, and I, we come across a family, let's say, and I knock on the door, and there's a family, and they got three rugrats, you know, little ones running around, and, um, and a mom who's obviously a little ragged. I'm not going to be rude. You know, I can't stay. That's what I always tell people. I can't stay. That's my secret. So if I come to your house and say I can't stay, that's code for I can't stay. And I'm trying to be considerate of the fact that I'm just dropping in. And, um, but if, I'm, if I have someone like that, and uh, we visited someone like that not too long ago, and uh, kids running around trying to get dinner ready and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, I want them to plug into a Bible study group where they'll be received, where they'll be, where they'll be ministered to, where they'll be, where they'll be loved, where they'll be able to make friends. And, and when I plug them into that Bible study group, um, where we're trying to start new groups is not at the 10 o'clock hour, but we're trying to start the new groups at the 8.30 hour, or I'm trying to help new people plug into that in that time frame. Now, if I'm asking people with little kids in particular, and by the way, the people with little kids, they've been bringing their kids um, if you notice, our elementary numbers are about the same. Our preschool went up a little bit. Our, our student numbers went up. So it's not been a problem with people with kids. But people with kids, you know, do have a little bit more challenge getting all their people here at 830. So one of the decisions that we made in discussions with our deacon body and as a staff is that when we go into our new church year, in our new Sunday school year on August 23rd, in order to accommodate the need to grow, and start new groups in our 8.30 hour, we are, we are going to shift our Bible study time 30 minutes. That's all. 30 minutes. And you say, you're going to start at 8 o'clock? No. We're going to go the other direction. We're going to move from 8.30 to 9 o'clock. And those of you with small kids and that sort of thing, I ought to hear glory, Hallelujah. I mean, I told our deacons, I said, you know, that means we don't have to meet at 6.30. We can move to 7 o'clock. Glory, hallelujah. Okay? So, so what does that do for us as a church? Well, it means that when we get ready to start a new group, and we're going to start uh, two or three new groups right out of the box in August. Uh, we've got, um, well, we just, we've got some already that have agreed and that are going to be working on starting new groups. And we're hoping most of them will start during that 9 o'clock or that first Bible study hour. It makes it easier for us to invite people who don't have a commitment to church, don't have a commitment to Christ, uh, to come at a little bit later hour. 
And so we are transitioning. We are going to shift the schedule 30 minutes. Um, we did look at a lot of different possibilities, but if we are trying to be serious about reaching people for Christ through our Bible study groups, we needed to make an adjustment because the empty hour was the early hour. The empty hour was the early hour, and we need to grow that particular one. So that's what's happened since we went to two Bible studies. Um, we have roughly a, a 30% in one hour, 70% in the other, 30-70. Ideally, what you want between two Bible study hours is something closer to 60-40. You never get 50-50, but you want to get away from where we are right now because we're hurting ourselves and we're not helping ourselves unless we can start more groups and help the, uh, the early hour people um, experience more growth, okay? So that's our thought. Well, what I want to do for the, the next five or ten minutes, and I'm really going to blister through this, okay? Um, I want to review the four principles that I shared in January 2013, and I've, I've revised them. If you were here and you still have your notes, I'm not covering everything in your notes, and I've changed some things. Here's the first principle. When we think about our Bible study groups and growing our Bible study groups, what are the, the most important things? Well, first of all, we need the principle of authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, we need to be Christ followers. We need to be people who are genuinely changed by Jesus, and we are growing in Christ, and we are becoming more like Christ in the way we treat others, in the way we talk about others, in the way we minister to others, in the way that we love others. Otherwise, we're just an organization trying to get bigger. And we are not that. And, uh, and you say, well, you know, you're just one of those preachers trying to build his own kingdom. Yeah, that's what I did when I came to win. That's what I did when I came to the Delta in Arkansas, is I'm here to build, build my own kingdom. Absolutely crazy to think in those terms. There's a sense of calling that all of us who serve you as your pastors have, in, in, and it keeps us here when nothing else will. On our worst days, when it seems like nothing's going right, and not even your mother will call you and tell you that they love you. It is your call from God that keeps you doing what you're doing, not strokes from other people, not, not all those other things. It's your sense of calling, and that's why you need a sense of calling, to do whatever you're doing, uh, because that's the thing that keeps you motivated and keeps you going. So authentic spirituality. We want to increasingly be a people who in our Bible study groups are reflecting what it means to follow Christ. Um, there are three questions, three big questions that I think we have to consider when we think about authentic spirituality. First, are we sharing the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel? Is our purpose in getting together to help people that have not heard the gospel hear the gospel? That is the genius of Bible study. Sunday school work has been for Baptists for over 100 years is that you don't have to be a Christian to be a part of our Sunday morning Bible study groups. And it's a place where a person who's not a Christian can come and hear about Christ and watch Christians treat each other and talk about each other and look at how they behave and they say, you know, there's something different about these people. They just, they look different, they talk different, they smell different. And then eventually they discover, it's Jesus. <laughs> That's why they're different. We saw this last week. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Are we sharing the gospel? Secondly, are we seeing a life transformation? 
You know, if I'm a teacher, if I'm not seeing people's lives change in my class, you know, that should bother me. Why am I there teaching week in, week out? We should see life transformation. And it's not just what a teacher does. It's what happens in that class together. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, remembering without ceasing. He's talking to the people in Thessalonica. And by the way, when Paul wrote churches, when he asked them, how are you doing? He didn't say, how many did you have in Bible study? He never said that. He never said, how big was your offering? <laughs> he never said it. He asked about these things. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those were the three metrics that Paul applied to a healthy church. Are they growing in faith? Are they growing in love? Are they growing in hope? And in this passage, the reason I love it so much is he says, I have seen your work that's produced by your faith. Faith produces the work. Um, Love produces the labor. Hope produces the patience and the endurance. And so he's seeing something that's happening on the inside of people. Bubble to the outside as work, as labor, as patience. And so are we seeing life transformation? Third question, are we producing disciples? And we talked about that this morning. Are we in the business that Jesus called us to pursue? Go and make disciples, he said. Are we doing that? And so I think the the big questions that we have to answer in coming months as a staff and as a church are these three questions. First, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? We have to be able to define it, and we need to define it to an extent that most of us over time can answer the question. I mean, we almost need to be in lockstep at that point. What is a disciple? We need to come to a place where we agree on what that is. Secondly, how will we make disciples? How do we do it at Wynn Baptist Church? Well, obviously, your pastor is really high on Bible study groups. I think one of the most effective ways you and I can build people is through what we do on Sunday morning. Third, how will we know when we have made a disciple? I mean, at some point, we've got to step back and say, how are we doing? Are we, are we really accomplishing the mission that God gave us to do? So that's the first principle, authentic spirituality. There's a second principle, the principle of relationships. The principle of relationships. Healthy Bible study groups are made up of people who genuinely like to be together. They are friends they enjoy each other's company. And, and they should become, over time, the closest of friends. The kind of people that can call each other up at 2 a.m. and say, how are you doing? Now, hopefully they don't do that often. But they should be that kind of person. I shared with you two and a half years ago this chart. Um, go ahead and bring it up. Uh, this research has been done over and over and over again. I want you to imagine somebody who comes to faith in Christ and they become part of Win Baptist Church. <clears throat> and you just pick a group of them. These are all new believers or new members that win Baptist Church. There is a clock ticking when they become part of this church. There's a clock ticking, and it's a relational clock, and it has to do with how many friends is that individual making in this church. Because the research has shown over and over again, and this is not about whether or not they're genuinely saved. But the research, has, the research has shown that if they make friends, they stay. If they don't make friends, they go somewhere where they can make friends. And so there's, a, there's a, a relationship between friendship, the number of friends people have, and time, and whether or not people stay or they become inactive. And what this chart shows us 
is that you see across the top how many friends somebody has in the first six months. So after the first six months have passed, I should be able to go to that new believer and say, how many friends do you have? Good friends have you made in this church? And the more friends they've had, you'll see that the people who are active, the more friends that they have, there are more active people or people who have stayed as you move from left to right. Do you see that? And the, the fewer friends that people have, the dropouts, the, as you move from left to right, the dropout rate, the number of people that drop out, is directly related to how many friends they have. The magic number is seven. Because if somebody comes into this church and within six months has seven people that they can point to and say, those men and women are my friends, they don't leave. They don't go anywhere else. Remember that chart I showed you about what's happened since 2007? There's a direct relationship between that chart and that chart right there. And so how important is it that relationships go deep in our Bible study groups? How, how important is it? You know, we hear more people excited about their 242 groups in the summer than we ever hear people talking about their Bible study classes. I'm not saying nobody is excited about their Bible study classes. I'm just saying we hear more about 242 groups. Why is that? Right there. For whatever reason, people feel like they're making really good friends in one, one particular group, but not necessarily in the other. The principle of relationships. There's a third principle, the principle of reproduction. The principle of reproduction. And, um, and this is where myself as a disciple, not as a pastor, but myself as a disciple, I'm called to reproduce myself and to help other people become disciples. In Luke 19, verses 9 and 10, you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Wee little man was he, up in the tree, all that stuff. And, um, and Jesus called to him, and he goes to his house, and this man repents. I mean, he repents big time. He goes back. He wants to undo everything he's ever done wrong financially to people. And Jesus says that, um, said to him in Luke 19, 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That is the mission statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his, his, his job. Now remember what we said, if we follow Jesus, what's he going to do? <laughs> well, what's important to him is going to become important to you and me. And that was his mission statement. Well, right after those verses, he tells a parable. He tells the parable about a man who had a lot of possessions, he was a wealthy businessman, but he was not a king, and he goes away to a far land to become a king, to receive a kingdom. And, um, and he says in, in the opening verses of the parable, Luke 19, 12, Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of the servants, delivered to them ten minas, that's a form of money, and said to them, do business till I come. And as the parable unfolds, the, the guy eventually comes back, and there's an accounting. What did you do with the minas that I gave you? What did you do with the resources that I gave you? And each of those individuals, uh, one of the guys doubled his. And, and uh, the master looked at him and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Another guy didn't do quite as well, but he did good. He, 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 he gave a return. He, he had more minas than when the guy left. And and he's also told that he was a good and faithful servant. So the amount of reproduction didn't matter. The fact of the reproduction did. 
And then there was one guy who did absolutely nothing with what he had. He held on to it. He didn't do anything. And, and you'll have to read it. It didn't turn out good for him. Jesus is serious about reproduction. I want you to see the significance of small group reproduction in this chart on the screen. And I've redone it from what I did uh, two and a half years ago. I want you to imagine a group of 365 people. And this group of 365 people working together managed to lead one person to Christ every day. Think about that. A, a church with 365 people, they reach one person every day. Now, while that's going on, a new person saved every day. While that's going on with that 365 people, I want you to imagine six groups of eight people, 48 people, not 365. 48 people, six groups of eight. And each group of eight sets a, a goal, a desire to double their group every 12 months. Now, think about that. If you're a group of eight, especially if you're a couples class, and you're going to double the number of couples in your group from 8 to 16. How many couples is that? This is heavy math. How many couples is that over 12 months? Four. Four. I heard, I heard some kids. They got out their calculators. Four. Okay? Four groups. That means if I was a teacher in a class with eight people, and we said, with God's help, and with his guidance, we're going to trust the Lord to give us eight more people or four couples in the coming year. I'm essentially trusting God for two people every three months. Two new people every three months. And, um, and as I trust the Lord for those, then, and, and we're looking for those people to come as a class, we begin to think about people we know. We begin to think about people we could invite. We begin about people that we love that as far as we know, aren't going to any church anywhere. We begin to think, well, I could invite them to my Bible study group. And, and why is that important? Because eight groups of eight people who decide that once every 12 months, they're going to start a new group of eight people. Well, those, those eight groups do it at the end of the year. Suddenly, you've got 96 groups at the end of five years, 768 people. When you get to year seven, you have this group over here, 365 people reaching one person every day. That's pretty amazing. But you got these, these other groups. They're just simply doubling. They're building people. They're growing them. They're not just running people through a baptistry. They're building people in Christ year after year after year. By year seven, they have completely outpaced and outstripped the people over here winning one a day. That's the power of reproduction. Jesus understood that. Paul understood that. That's why he told Timothy, what, I've received from, what you've received from me, I want you to entrust it to faithful men. Paul understood that. Do we understand the principle of reproduction? Then last of all, there's the principle of leadership. The principle of leadership. And I want to share with you, just as we close, three things um, under the principle of leadership that you can do in your Bible study group. If you're in a Bible study group, students, you're at a table group, whatever the situation may be, um, there are some really basic things. What, what can you take away from this conversation tonight in my study, pretending? What can you take away and begin to think about in your group first? And I would say this primarily to teachers. Enhance your teaching with interaction and application. 
enhance your teaching with interaction and application. Now, when I, when I preach on Sunday morning and I lecture, uh, everybody who's done any work in education studies will tell you that that is the least effective way to educate people and to encourage retention. Most people have forgotten everything I've said by Wednesday. I have forgotten most everything I said by Wednesday. If all I do is lecture. So, so what do I do to help? You remember the handouts we do every Sunday? If you're, if you're listening to me sufficiently that you're writing things down, I just helped you remember things a little bit longer. We have, we have things we put on the screen. That's designed to help you. We've added visuals. It helps you remember things a little bit longer. I usually have a creative element somewhere in the sermon. It may be lame, but I have something. Something. And it's to help retention of the biblical truth that I'm teaching. Now, you have all the advantage as a Sunday school teacher because you can do feedback, you can do interaction, you can do activities, you can do discussion groups, you can do Q&A, you can have little projects that they do together. And there's a million things you can do as a teacher to enhance retention. But I just want to encourage you as teachers to, to take it up a notch because if what happens in your Bible study class is a little sermon and then everybody comes in here and they get a big sermon, we are not helping people grow in Christ. And you have a tremendous advantage. If I'm a teacher, I want people to learn. Don't you? I don't want to waste my life teaching, 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 teaching. Nobody learn. And so I need to be paying attention to that as a teacher. Are people learning? Are people retaining? Are people changing? I want that authentic spirituality thing to be happening if I'm a Sunday school teacher. That's the first thing we can think about doing. Secondly, if you're a member of a class, i got a couple things for you. Enhance your relationships with parties with a purpose. Parties with a purpose. You guys need to get together. Need to spend time together outside of Sunday morning. It will change what happens on Sunday morning when you get together outside of class. And parties with a purpose, what, is the, what do you imagine the purpose of the party is? It's to build relationships. Remember how many friends we want people to make? When they come into the, our church, what's the magic number? Seven. If all they're doing is coming to class and they're hearing a teacher talk for an hour and then they leave, are they making relationships? No. And so I want to help do what I can on Sunday morning to build relationships, but also uh, parties with a purpose. And so when we get together, listen to me. I'm with you if you hate games. I, I just hate games. I, I hate silly. Amen. I hate silly games. Don't ask me to do games. But look, if I'm going to play a game, buddy, I want to win. <laughs> and that's why I'm no good with games, because suddenly the pastor's personality shifts, and it's not pretty. And, um, but it helps me if I know that the purpose of the game is for me to connect with some people maybe that I don't know as well. And so you plan little activities. Don't make the whole thing about games. But, but, um, but, but do some activity, do some things to help people learn each other's names. Name tags are always good, um, especially at your parties. But do parties with a purpose. You can do that. Your teacher can't do everything to help your class. He or she has got all they can handle just to do life and to prepare their lesson. And so teachers, don't feel like this is all on you. Uh, class members, you've got to pick up this thing about building relationships and building friends. 
And, um, and so do parties with a purpose. And I got a last one for members. Enhance your outreach with prayer and intentionality. This is where reproduction happens. Um, when we know that we have someone who is ready to plug in to our church, um, or we believe that they are, we try to get those names to the teachers in their, in their class packets. And so when that comes to your class, that's somebody that's that somewhere in the mix we've looked and we said, you know, we think that if somebody from this class would try to make a connection with this person, we think that, that it'll be a great match. We think that this person would love that class and that class would love that person. Now, we're talking about old-fashioned Sunday school outreach. There's no magic here. But it is all about connecting with people that feel like strangers when they come. They don't know anybody here. It takes a lot of courage to walk into a church like this where you don't know anybody. And, um, and so it really helps when someone reaches out and says, hey, my name's, uh, my name's Don. Or what's your name? And uh, you got anybody sitting with you this morning? Let me sit with you. And when we get done, hey, have you ever been to Bible study? No. Hey, let me take you to Bible study with me. And uh, if you're in the, the later hours, say, come next week, I'll meet you. <laughs> we'll go to the early Bible study hour together. But, but we reach out to them. When, when that name comes in there, it would really be helpful if in every class there were two or three or four men and women who said, we're just going to take responsibility for that. That we know that when there's someone that might match up with our class, we're going to take some time during the week to give them a call, write them a note, or maybe just go and, and get on their doorstep. And just say, hey, da, 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 I can't stay. It's a good line. It's a good line. Because people think, oh, no, here's some kind of obnoxious person from that Baptist church. No, you don't do that. Just, hey, I can't stay. Just wanted to thank you for coming. And we want to invite you to our bubble study class uh, this Sunday morning. We meet at, at, at 830 or we meet at 10 o'clock. We'd love to have you. And uh, here's some information about our class. And you say, well, we don't have anything to give them. Well, make it up. You know, draw a picture, hand it to them. Happy face. <laughs> okay. And, and it would really be great if in every class, two or three, four adults said, we're going to own this. Or in, in uh, table groups, some students said, we're going to own this. And uh, we're going to reach out and love on people who, who show an interest in our church. Well, look, that's, um, that's as far as I wanted to go tonight. I appreciate your patience and uh, your attentiveness as uh, we've talked through this this evening. As, um, as you know, this is family talk. Uh, Family talk is uh, what I used to tell my kids when uh, we talked about something really important to the family that, um, that we need to give careful consideration to. This is family talk. And I want to encourage you to take this home, think about some of the things that we've talked about, things that we've said. And just ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to respond to that? I want us to go ahead and do an invitation tonight. And, um, and if you're a Bible study leader in any capacity, uh, you might just want to grab a friend and just come down and pray for your class. Just take a moment just to pray for your class. Uh, if you need leaders in your class, you may just want to ask the Lord, just take some time in this response time to say, oh God, would you raise up some people to help me? Especially if you're a teacher, you may be in that position. Oh Lord, would you just raise up somebody who will come alongside me and help me in this ministry of Bible study groups? It's not about more numbers, but every one of those numbers represents people who desperately need Jesus and who need to grow in Christ. And you are in the most, you are on the front lines 
in my opinion, of where that happens. I believe in what we do in here on Sunday morning. And I'm never going to uh, sell preaching short. I believe in it with all my heart. But, but you are on the front lines of where lives typically change in our church. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've heard us talk about a lot of church stuff this evening. I want to encourage you. If you want to know Jesus, I want to help you know him. We'll have some pastors down front. Uh, they'll be here to pray with you and answer your questions. But our Lord Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission to rescue you from the enemies of your soul, to change your life. And what he asks you to do is come to him and surrender and say, I'm going to trust you with my whole life, whatever it takes to save me and change me, Lord. I'm putting my trust in you to do that. And tonight, you may be at the end of your rope, and I don't know what's happening in your life, but trust me, God knows, and you are not here by accident. And so if you came tonight and you are ready, you're saying, I need what they're talking about. I need to know Jesus. I want to invite you to come when we stand and sing. Please don't worry about what other people will think or say. Uh, most of the people here love Jesus, and they're going to go, yes. And they're going to pray for you, and they're going to encourage you. So if that's where you are tonight, I invite you to come. The rest of us, if God has spoken to your heart tonight, you may just need to saddle up next to somebody and say, let's pray. Let's pray for our group. You may need to come down here. You may have another prayer need or burden on your heart that we haven't even touched on tonight. Come speak to one of our pastors. We'll pray with you. How, how God has spoken to you, this is the moment where you can respond to him. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for speaking to us tonight through Scripture, through observations, uh, through moving in our hearts. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the ministry of this church. And I thank you for the sweetness of the fellowship that is here. I thank you, Lord, for the dear ones who week in and week out serve and love and encourage your people. I thank you for the disciples that have been made here over decades, uh, the numbers of men that can point to other men, Lord, and say, that man helped me know Jesus. That, that man helped me grow in Christ. I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for the women who can point to older women who did that for them. But Father, we're not, we're not finished, and we know you're not finished with us. And we believe, Father, that when we obey you and we look to you, that the best days of this church are ahead of us, not behind us. That's where we want to be, and we trust you for that. We believe that, that kind of faith pleases you. So Lord, as we respond to you as a church family, we want to come to you and open our hearts wide. We want to listen for your voice, and we want to say yes to you in advance. In whatever way you lead us, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.